Okay, go. We need to turn this off. It's off. Okay, good. So, first of all, thanks so much for honoring us with your presence. As Don says, whenever someone consumes your contents, all other things equal, they consider it more interesting than everything in the world from Netflix sex. So, we really appreciate you being here. So, what was the idea behind today's uh, this topic? There are some philosophies out there, like Stoicism or Effecting Badrian, that in some ways promise the same thing as Objectives brought, which is a good life. But follow this philosophy, and your life will be in some way better. Stoicism says you will be prepared for the suffering which is life. So, with Stoicism, you can. You make sure that you suffer voluntarily, so then you're ready for the real deal. And with effective outlets, it is that you make sure how every day of your life, and all aspects of your life, including your career, is targeted towards the good, which for that the order to the good is helping others. Now here's what I find very mysterious, and I hope you help me solve it. Stoicism, with various expressions, books, podcasts, has millions of followers. I checked before we entered the room that Dane Stoic has close to 750,000 subscribers on YouTube. How many subscribers have we got, Razi? A bit less. Okay. And the question is why? Why is it that this philosophy becomes more inspiring for more appealing to people? And when it comes to effective actually, it's as I found on the internet, a billion dollar business, which means entrepreneurs, productive people, so people who should be also our audience, start with happy one audience, are considering it a very appealing philosophy. But today we're trying to answer two questions. First, what is that objective that effective egoism is offering people in terms of the good life? And second, and personally, the most interesting thing for me, why is it that we're not winning? I think we have the better ideas. Why is it that stoicism, which tells you that suffering is cool, why is it more appealing than the philosophy which says you life is good you? So we start with John and then we go to the Aaron and make sure you actively participate in the QA because I consider this very important. That when we leave this room, we have a better understanding of what is happening, and we start fixing this. I don't want you three years to still wonder, oh, why is objective less popular than stories? It should be. You remember three years ago when the counter attack started? So, Doc. So, uh, wait, are we answering both questions at once, or are we answering them one at a time? You say and answer whatever you want. I'm just saying what the agenda, so. Yeah, so we'll get to the why. You will get, yeah. I, certain ideas are winning, but I think I want to start out by just getting a little bit of the lay of the land or how I think about the lay of the land. And that is, if we're thinking about the good life and what we want for life, the culture offers kind of two basic alternatives. One is happiness without morality, and the second is morality without happiness. So happiness without morality, this is, it, so morality is basically fundamental guidance on what it means to be a good person on how to live, and how to act. And the sort of conventional approach to anybody offering happiness has nothing to do with morality. It's 
there's really kind of two places that people will turn if they're seeking guidance on happiness. So one will be more broadly, even the self-help genre, right? And here there's, it's an eclectic, uh, kind of set of ideas, tactics. Many of them are contradictory. A lot of them are superficial. So just to give an example, you'll have a lot of the, um, gurus like Tony Robbins will talk about, you got to set goals and pursue your goals. But what advice do they offer about what kind of goals to set? What kind of goals are worth striving for? And what are the fundamental virtues that will allow me to achieve goals? And what kind of goals can fit together coherently? There's no guidance on that at all. And so what it basically amounts to is do what you want and be really excited about it. Like that's the kind of guidance you get, I think, from the self-help world. And I don't want to devalue it completely because it can give you very cool tactical things. Uh, as Nikos may talk about, it can be inspiring and motivational, but it definitely does not give you a coherent framework for what happiness is and how to achieve it. The other place that we get happiness without morality is psychology. And here you have psychologists who will often engage in studies that will try to assess what really makes people happy. The important sweet. The important sweet. Well, it's... Uh, so what they'll use is happiness studies. And happiness studies, they, they're, they, they're conducted in different ways, but one way is they just ask people, how happy are you? Rate it. And just to give one brief, you mentioned sweet. One brief illustration of how it like really, uh, let's call it unrevealing these studies are. So in Sweden, it's something like, I'm going to get the exact numbers wrong, but the relationships are right. Um, about 10% of people will say, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely happy. Or no, it's... Um, what, it, what it basically amounts to, I wish I could remember the exact numbers. What it basically amounts to is that um, the, the number of people who say they're happy, it... Uh, doesn't like integrate with the number of pe people who say they'll, they're clinically depressed. So it'll be like, you know, 90% of people say that they're happy and 20% of people will say they're clinically depressed. And so you get, there's, there's some kind of clash going on here. And again, it's not that these psychological studies tell us nothing, but how you define happiness is a philosophic question. And so people can say they're happy when by any standard, their life isn't going the way they want it to. They're suffering, you know, different cultures generally. I mean, there's some cultures uh, that it's just culturally, you never admit to be happy. I think you said to Israelis, uh, you're on, like, it's never okay to. Yeah, Jews never said they're happy. Yeah, happy? happy. Whereas other cultures, you can be completely miserable, but it's expected that you say that you're happy. So I just think it's not sufficient guidance that you get when you have happiness without morality. And then morality without happiness, I think we'll explore this in more detail. Nikos mentioned the effect of altruism. This is basically, and the Stoics, this is basically the idea that morality, being good, what the good life consists of, is something other than your personal happiness. So the effect of altruism, for instance, they take for granted you should do the most good. Well, what is the most good? It's placing others above yourself. And so here's some of the concrete guidance that you should get. What do you want to do with your life? What kind of work would fill you with passion? Screw that. No, no, no. You need to pick a job that's going to be really high pay so that you can donate most of the money to charity. You're going to be miserable? Too bad. You can, you can save lives that way. How many kidneys do you have? Anybody here have more than one? Get rid of the other one. 
give it to some stranger because that's what it means to be a good person. It's the elevation of others above your own personal happiness. And it's this, and, and stoicism is uh, a similar sort of thing. It's the idea that, no, it's not striving to be happy. It's striving not to experience negative emotions by not caring about anything in particular. And so, like, a, a kind of ideal would be, you know, if you can feel indifferent to winning the lottery versus having your best friend killed right in front of you, great job. You've managed to attain, like, the right orientation to life. And, I mean, to me, that's not a description of happiness, not a description of the good life, it's a description of a lobotomy. Uh, and so what I read offers, and what I think is so inspiring and valuable about it, is a morality of happiness. It's going to give you fundamental guidance on what it means to be a good person, but being a good person means good for you, for your happiness and for your joy. So I'll just leave it at that. There's a lot more to say about that, but you're right, maybe you can fill in uh, if you want to elaborate on anything else, but definitely on the positive of what it means to be egoistic. Yeah, I mean, first let's be clear that, because um, I saw some stuff on, online about this, uh, the title of this, which I see was yours. If I have, I my next book will have. That the book goes to It's effective because of, um, which I see does does because it's a clever title. And Don always comes up with the clever titles. Uh, in a sense, again, it's like anything egoism, like rational egoism, and it's it's a redundancy. The 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 point of egoism is to be effective at living. It's to be effective at living your life or the purpose of your happiness, your success, your achievement, your flourishing uh, at living. And what, of course, because we're talking about a, a philosophy, it a tells you why you should live your life for you. It gives you a reason for it. And then what Rahid does is she provides a, a, a approach, a whole system of looking at the world and how to choose your values, what should guide your choice of the values to pursue. Uh, it's not what you feel like. It's not, you know, uh, avoiding pain. It's not doing what the culture expects that is altruism. It's not other. It's what really is good for me. Uh, and of course, the methodology of doing that is 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 to use reason to to look at the world to evaluate what is actually good for human beings, what is not good for human beings, what should be embraced the good, and what should be avoided the bad for human life. So first, what are the principles? What are the what are the principles that are universal that are true of all human beings? Right. All the reason that's true of all human beings. And only once you get the principles, reason, proactiveness, honesty, so on, then can you start talking about, okay, now what values are going to lead to my happiness? How do I take that and break it down to the more concrete values that are actually personal? Now, we're going to choose different careers, we're going to choose different people to marry, we're going to choose different, uh, different types of restaurants to go to. With, there are a lot of optional values now, but the focus, the orientation, is towards our own happiness, and it's always guided by the universal principle. So we have to achieve them through the use of reason, through the, you know, through an understanding of of who we are and the nature of the world around us. So it's incredibly, this is an incredibly powerful tool we now have. 
right, which is morality, the principles of morality, then now could shape each of our lives. Now we could take it, turn it into, and this is why, you know, whenever somebody says, oh, you guys are in a cult, or libertarians, for example, often a critique we hear from libertarians uh, is, objectivism is a libertarian. It's not really a philosophy of, uh, of liberty. Why? Because you have principles of morality, which means everybody has to be the same. And you have to, you have to, you know, somebody's not rational, they're out, according to objectives. And that leads to pulling go authoritarianism. Now we can have a government saying what's rational, what's not. And I got this question in, in the living movement book, Cyrus. I didn't know it was serious. He just read The Ritual's Opposition, and he took it as this is some kind of authoritarian morality. And, you know, the confusion, which is typical of libertarian of morality with politics, right? They can't think of morality separate from politics. So, so we have principles that therefore they're dictates, therefore they're political. That is a punishment, not from reality, from other people. Uh, so we have, let me just, as an aside, like, but that's like saying like the principles um, like of gravity is authoritarian because a plane, if it doesn't obey the well, you know, laws of the aerodynamics is going to crash into the ground. Yeah, that's true, but it doesn't mean that that dictates where the plane flies or the exact design of the plane. There's plenty of personal decisions that are left over, but it's accepting the framework of what is it you would be actually require a order to thrive. And that's what they're throwing away and saying is authoritarian, that there are real requirements. And this is true of the culture generally. So the culture generally, for example, accepts broadly that there is a science of nutrition. Like there's certain things that you eat. Now, we're not very good at the science of nutrition, maybe, but there is a science. And there's certain things that we know are poison, and there's certain things that we think or know with a certain level of certainty that are good for you. And, and the methodology, there's some methodology that differentiate, and there's a methodology that ultimately arrive at what an ideal diet is. Uh, it, it is a science, it, it, it's a scientific method. But as soon as it comes to human behavior, and if you will, the spiritual world, the, the world of ideas, the world of values and virtues, and human action, there's no science. And this is, again, typically libertarian. There's no science. People should do whatever the hell they want, right? It doesn't matter. I want you to tell me what's going to achieve happiness and what's not going to achieve happiness. I'm not anybody. It's reality that's going to dictate what will achieve happiness and what was not. So it's interesting how they, they, there's a line drawn on what is it science or what is not science. We consider the spiritual values a question of science, a question of objective reality, studying reality, discovering truths about what actually leads to human survival, thriving, and happiness. And that is both a empirical question and a question that is derived logically from our nature, from what we are as human beings, our rational faculty. Uh, and, and that's the beauty is that we now have this, this principle. And now every value and every thing that you want, that you think might lead to happiness, you can test against these principles. You can figure out, is it rational? Does it disrupt my, you know, my career, which I know is, 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 is an important value to me because that's my purpose. Is it disruptive to that? You now have a framework for which to choose your values. And now you also know that the reason you're choosing these values is not because because told you. It's not because, uh, you know, this is going to lead to somebody else's well-being and the society values that. But it's because it's your life. 
So you're here motivated to pursue good because it's you. It's about your life, your happiness, everything to do with you. So you take this self-help stuff, which a lot of people seem to be motivated by. So there's something in all of human beings out there that wants to pursue their own happiness. They're not allowed to do it because altruism nudges them backwards. But they're constantly seeking this superficial stuff so they can taste a little bit of the happiness, a little bit of the success. What objectives of liberates us to say, no, the self-help stuff, the good one, the, the good stuff. That's what it's all about. That's morality. That's what you should be pursuing. And here's, here's the principles by which to evaluate how to do it and by which to guide your direction and to motivate you and to drive you. And in that sense, we should, uh, you know, objectivist, where you integrate the philosophy, it makes you a passionate, the opposite of is right? You're, you're engaged with your life. You're involved in your life. Everything is about this because everything is integrated. Everything is integrated around these principles that are leading you to happiness and are leading you to be a successful human being at this thing called life. Uh, so it's, it's, it's everything that, 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 that affects altruism and historicism is it. It's fully, completely integrated because we need an effective altruist. Um, yeah, give up what your passion is and go and do whatever. Because they're scientific, right? They're not the kind of altruists of the past. Why are they effective altruists? Because altruists of past go become Mother Teresa. And these altruists, these new altruists are saying, wait a minute, actually becoming Mother Teresa might not be the best use of my time. If I care about other people, maybe the best use of my time is I go and spot a company, make zillions of dollars, and then and then I could really have a huge impact. Say, so recognize that wealthy people have more of an impact than Mother Teresa have. So they're being scientific about it. They're thinking it through. Well, I call it naive altruists. So they're really trying to take seriously that we're trying to lead to a good result for other people. They don't have a clear conception of what good would mean for another person, but they're really trying to think, what's the benefit that my sacrifices are bestowing on other people? But I think it's actually the Mother Teresa type who are really taking altruism seriously. Because altruism uh, is really about the sacrifice. It's not about the benefit to other people. And so if you want a pure example of altruism, it's the kind of thing you run into every day. You very rarely run into somebody who's like, yeah, I gave a kidney away. Or I took a job on Wall Street that I hate just so I can give 90% to charity. But how many of us have met or uh, experienced the equivalent of the father who's having health problems and says to his daughter, you need to take care of me. You owe me. You, you need to put family first. It's people who try to instill guilt in order to demand your sacrifice. That is the face of altruism. It's not the person who's thinking about how can I do the most charitable thing. And that's where we really see it every day. And so in the sense of I don't put Peter Seeger or the leaders of effective altruism, I put them in that very negative category. But a lot of the attraction of effective altruism is people say, yeah, I really do want to do good. And that, and, and, and I realize that living among the four isn't do good. How can I do good? Uh, but I think they're being naive about the nature of the moral code that they're trying to serve. Uh, yeah, very much so. I mean, altruism is a day to day all about, uh, all about sacrifice. And even they, as scientific as they try to be, uh, you know, vaguely recognize that maybe business does good as well because many of them are in business, particularly in Silicon Valley. Uh, but they can't really hold that. They can't hold that the profit motive, right, is actually 
helping other people, is making lives of other people. Yeah, no, no, they never say, go start a business that makes a billion dollars, employs a whole bunch of people. Like, that's off the table. Well, they want to do that, but so that they can do good afterwards, right? So that they can do the good, so they can give the money away, but not viewing the actual creating the business as a good, even with, even though in their context, right, doing good for other people, it is. It's much better than the charity you do. So, uh, so yes, they're completely evading. Uh, and that's it. They strike we as the most benevolent of all the altruists because they, 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 they seek to have this real idea of, of doing good, of, of, of helping other people. They seem to really care about it. And they don't seem to really be suffering as much, right? So most of them, actually, the ones I met, actually, they pursue careers and, and do fun things and, and doing, and then, but they know they've got this type of altruism on this and they've got to be as as this rule. Peter Singer is a philosopher, the Australian philosopher, who is, uh, you know, who inspires many of these. He has this rule, take 10% of your income, like a tithe, and give it to Chairman. You, you know, you take good charities, effective charities, right? And and they, they're happy to do that. They, 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 you know, they do that, but then they can they, they can go on with their life pretending that they were butchers, and then they get into this happiness without morality. They try, they're still trying to look for happiness, but without any morality. Uh, because the morality is a ten percent they gave away, right? That that covers their guilt. It doesn't really, of course. Well, no, I mean, that's that's the thing. And if you read Sayers' books, right. a part of what he's holding up, so he tries to, in one way, assuage your guilt. Be like, hey, if you do ten percent, that's good enough. But on the other hand, he talks up in lauds. Um, he talks about this one girl who's struggling, going, "I really want to become a parent." But how can I justify that when I won't be able to give as much to charity? I won't be able to sacrifice enough. Um, and the most that Seeger can say is, well, look, maybe your kid can grow up to be an altruist. That's a justification for parenthood. And like, like that is the level at which these people who take this seriously, they wrestle with guilt every day. It's, yeah, I give 10%, so I'm not a monster. But Seeger's own reasoning basically says you should be giving away as much as you can to Africa to the point where you would live like somebody in a poor African country. And he says, yeah, I don't do that, but I try my best. <laughs> he, 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 he is all one of those people, because, uh, but, he, but he's riddled with guilt. If you ever see interviews or as he talks a Peter Singer, you can tell he's riddled with guilt over the fact that he doesn't do war, that he's not willing to sacrifice, he's not willing to suffer uh, like his Hawassian in a sense necessitates. Um, so again, they, they come up with formulas and gimmicks to reduce the guilt without having to actually live a, a real altruistic life, which of course is impossible. And, and I think they know deep down that it's impossible. Now, Nikos asked the question, why are they successful? Uh, and by implication, why are we not? Uh, and that's, that's a question we should always be asking. So I don't think we'll have the definitive answer today, uh, because we should always be getting better at what we do. Uh, but why are they successful? They're successful because they have a challenge to have school. They're successful because they're taking what is in the culture, what is uh, deeply rooted in our religion and in our secular philosophy, and has been for 2,000 years, and they're just spinning off of it. They're just accepting it and then giving a little twist and making it sexy, making it a little bit more appealing. Uh, you know, the, 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 the stoics, uh, pretend to care about you as an individual, um, but they've accepted the Christian view of life sucks and life is misery and life is suffering, and they're giving you a cure for that. 
detach your emotions from it, you know, handle your suffering better, be, become, become stronger to handle those emotions. It's a pretend self-help. It's kind of, it, it's kind of a, a self-help by, by, uh, by ignoring what you are, but accepting, fundamentally accepting the Christian vision of life as suffering and life as a, a disaster. And of course, the, the, uh, the effect of altruists, again, the altruists, everybody's an altruist. What's new about that? Well, the only new thing is about it is they, they, they give it a guise of science, they give it a guise of sophistication, they give it a guise of success, you're going to be effective this time, several really to help other people. Um, and, and, and to the last extent, as Don said, they do it by ignoring what altruism is really about, which is you all suffering, you all sacrifice. Uh, so they're effective or they're successful because they're mainstream. Because they they're never challenging the mainstream. They're not they're not questioning the mainstream. They're just embracing it. And and the mainstream intellectually, the mainstream philosophically, and the mainstream in the street out there. If you stop somebody out there, ask them what morality is, they answer something vague that is similar to effective altruism of the services. That that's what they they actually produce. Yeah, and I mean I would say. First of all, I don't think effective altruism is popular. I think it's trendy. Like, I think it's a cool thing for people who are, like, in the know intellectually to be involved in. Stoicism, I think there's a, uh, it's popular in, uh, in comparison to other ideas. I think with Stoicism, it's, um, I agree with what Iran said, but I think part of it is, one thing you see, so there's an objectivist view that ideas drive history, but the state of a culture can also drive ideas. And so what you've seen historically is that something like stoicism often becomes attractive when life feels very unstable and people don't know how to cope with it. And I think one of the attractions to stoicism is that life has been very scary and unstable really since 9-11 uh, in the West, but particularly in the, the uh, last 10 or so years. And that creates a certain kind of attraction to it. But let me also name, I think, a better attraction to it. If you're pursuing your happiness and you're pursuing ambitious goals, one of the things you have to endure is challenging costs. And some of what people have taken from Stoicism is sort of like, what are the mind frames and tactics you can use to endure hardship on the way to an inspiring goal? And see, what are the things... Part in how Stoicism became trendy is athletes got really turned on to it through Ryan Holiday's work. And I don't think they were sitting there going, I'm not going to pursue values, I'm detached from reality. What they liked was the idea of, I need to push myself for six hours a day to train. That's really hard. How do I make myself accept that pain in order to get to my exciting goal playing in the NFL or winning a championship? And that kind of advice... Um, was appealing to them. So I think there's an appeal to better people there. And even with effective altruism, as Yaron was saying, there's an appeal to better people, which is, I want to do something amazing in the world. I don't just want to like sit around and be core with somebody. I want to solve cool problems. So I think both of them also try to appeal to better parts of human beings. Uh, we can talk about objectivism and the extent to which we've been successful or unsuccessful, but that's sort of how I think about how those ideas have achieved if not exactly popularity, then um, kind of uh, being sexy. I want to push the speakers a bit more on me. So if you want to be inspired on how to hustle, if you want to be inspired on how to forgive everything for your purpose, 
Why Ryan Hall is a no-towed rock? So, I get what you say that uh, affected us more in tune with dominant ideas. But particularly with stoicism, it asks you to do difficult things. If you think about David Goggins, it's not easy to be David Goggins. And the mere fact that you see him puts the bar high. You see him say, well, I can be better, I could do better. And the same happens with the heroes of Iron Rock, particularly with, with Rock. So let me ask once more, why stoicism is not us? Well, I'll name one part of it. The, I don't, this may or may not be a fundamental, but I think it's real. Ryan Holiday's alive, Eidoran's not. If Eidoran was writing this today, I don't, I, I think, let me put it more broadly. People respond to living figures who are helping them understand the world today. And the challenge we have is to be a compelling cultural figure in our, in our own right, who also is sharing Eidoran's framework. But part of the challenge is when you're presenting yourself as, hey, I'm an expert in Eidoran's framework. It's like, okay, but, you know, that's from the past. I want to know what's cool today. Ryan Holiday's one side ratings is also from the past. I know, but people don't respond to Marcus Aurelius. They respond to Tim Ferriss, Ryan Holiday, and then they go, oh, I guess I'll read your influences. But she was alive. Right? Yeah, but, but you know, at her time, she was a major cultural figure. Yeah, but not enough not not enough to, to, to have the kind of impact these people had. Oh, no. She was as big as Ryan Holiday is today. Not of any individual, but in terms of a move at stoicism to be bigger yeah. than objectivism was when she was alive. Uh, because it's available. The inforce. I mean, the internet. I mean, it depends how patient it. We had Atlas as a cultural force that people took seriously and were inspired by. It was as big. The certainly of objectivism as a philosophy shaping people's thinking there. You're definitely right. Yeah, yeah for sure. And I think that's part of it. Objectives is a philosophy. It's a philosophy shipping. Our socialism is kind of a philosophy, but it's relatively shallow. It doesn't demand that much. I mean, it demands certain actions, but it doesn't demand intellectually that much. Uh, Objectivism, I, I mean, I know some people hate it when it says, but qua philosophy, it's hard. It, 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 it is demanding because, and it's it, maybe it's the odd and demanding because it's so new and because it overturns so much of what philosophy is today. I mean, everything she says is in many respects the opposite of what philosophers have been saying for 2,000 years. People ask, well, we must have needed another egoistic philosopher. That's not 2,500 years ago. That's it. And then I met, and you know, maybe she knows it a little bit, maybe. but no, there hasn't been an egoistic philosopher for 2,500 years. And suddenly he comes on board and says, egoism. Well, it's going to take a while. 2,500 years of, you know, just going after uh, egoism and, and, and proposing the alternative. It's a very different, it's very difficult to shift people's attitudes around these things, particularly in a Christian culture. And we're still a Christian culture, even though we've been in Christianity. We're still very much Christian in that sense. So I think it's the fact, you know, I read was a... Uh, I mean, I think if stoicism is kind of a self-help, maybe a slightly different uh, self-help guy. If we if we were just about like a superficial kind of morality thing, do your best, live the light to the fullest, yeah, we would probably be bigger. But we actually have a whole theory about you have to need a reason, and we have a theory about what reason it is, and it's hard to think you want it to be. 
and it's it's a it, it, it functions by a particular methodology and is important for at least some of us to understand that methodology so we can exhibit it. There's a, there's so much there. It's not just at the end of the day, it boils down to morality and living your life. But you have to know so much more in order to do that well. And it, it just is too much of a heavy lift, I think, for most people. Well, even the people who want, so I work with a lot of young people trying to implement this philosophy in their lives. And the striking thing, and this is true for me too, uh, and in many ways still is, it's a work in progress. Even when you want to live by philosophy because you think it's really getting reality right, even when you finally come to understand what it's actually kind of asking you, what, how would I actually live by this? You can still struggle with it. I mean, th there's plenty of objectivists who find you like, I still have kind of Christian attitudes towards sex that makes me feel uncomfortable or guilty, or I still struggle with certain things in the productive realm. It's really hard because it's so fundamental. So one way to think about what morality does to a person or is to a person is that it's shaping your self-esteem and how you evaluate your self-esteem. And so when you ask somebody to change a philosophy, particularly change your morality, what you're saying is your whole self-concept is now thrown into question and you have to rearrange how you evaluate yourself in the deepest sense. That is a big, big ask and no other philosophy today is asking something that fundamental. Good.